we are going to take you to Shechem. And uh, like I said, yeah, Shechem is basically right here in the land of Israel, kind of right in the center. And there is all kinds of things that have gone on in Shechem. It is filled with history. And I could pick a number of different stories that would um, take you there. But last week, we were kind of leading you in archaeology up to the time of Jacob and Esau. And we looked at Esau's descendants that became enemies of Israel. This time we need to kind of look at Jacob's descendants through whom the promise of God and the promise of Abraham, the covenant of Abraham, went. Remember, when God is, when we first are introduced to him ultimately in Scripture, he is Elohim, the God of creation. And then pretty soon it says that from this time on they began to call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, a personal God. And he had called Abraham to be the one through whom he was going to ultimately make a covenant and bring his son Yeshua to, to bring salvation to the world, to all of his creation, if they were willing. And so he becomes known as the God of Abraham. And then, as Abraham has children, he becomes known as the God of Abraham and Isaac. And then Isaac has children, and he becomes known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has children, 12 children, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, and he becomes known as the God of Israel. And it stops there. We don't have him called the God of Christians, the, the God of Christianity. He's always the God of Israel. And that is because God expects anybody who is not Israel, who wants to be a part of Israel, to join. You're going to see that even here at Shechem. Um, again, Shechem is filled with history. Jacob is the one who purchased Shechem. Um, we're going to see that he's going to have a well here that he will dig. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go. Um, never tells us that in the Old Testament, but we do find it in the New Testament and in history. So here again is that red dot is showing you Shechem. It's in the hill country. You can see the different areas of the promised land, the coastal plain, which was again the, uh, the uh, Philistines and the Canaanites for most all of history outside of a short time really in David's reign. Then the hill country along which followed the, the, the road of the kings, the king's highway, where uh, or the patriarchs, not the kings, the king's highway is actually on the Transjordan, but the, the patriarchal highway, the the road of the patriarchs. And then the Rift Valley, which kind of follows the Jordan River, and then on the Transjordan Plain, that's where the, the, uh, King, the King's Highway was, where you could go back and forth. But anyway, we're not going to talk too much about the geography, but I want you to really focus in on this red dot. Now, by the way, just to give you some perspective here, that's Mount Carmel right there. We have talked about the Valley of Jezreel. Um, you know, the Armageddon battle and all of that is supposed to take place here all the way through this valley. And uh, the, the Jezreel Valley specifically is there. That's where today the Air Force in Israel is, is centered. And they've got, uh, you can stand up on Mount Carmel and look over the plains and see their, 
airplanes there taking off. And so, uh, yes, over the plains. So, And so, again, as I said, look at this map that Matt bought. This is going to give you a good idea that it, it's basically right here. And you can see it's in the mountain range here in the hill country, but it's in a plain of the hill country. You're going to be able to see that in a few of the pictures that I'm going to, to bring up here. But, <laughs> yeah, I know this is not a great picture, and not and won't, won't be, but right now it's just more about location. Shechem is here. That little green area is today biblical Shechem. Okay? But what I want you to note is that it's on the in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. As I said, Jacob is going to make a well here. It is right there, just outside of town. And Joseph's tomb is also there. The Bible tells us that when they left Egypt, Joseph made him swear, take my bones with you. Why? Because he, he believed in the promise of God. And it didn't matter if he was going to see it in his lifetime or not. He knew the promise would be fulfilled. And he said, God is going to give you this land. Didn't belong to him. But he said, God said to Abraham, to Isaac, that they're going to give him this land. So I know God's going to make, you know, right on that promise. So take me there. And it is here that they go. And the Bible says they bury his bones there. And his tomb is there to this day. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. It's about 30 miles away from Jerusalem as well. The very heartland of Israel is Samaria. So again, in our map of Israel, you have Samaria all in this area. Now, you might remember the Samaritans. We're going to talk about them a little bit tonight. Um, it was on the main route of the road of the patriarchs. And so after... Uh, basically the Babylonian captivity, when they came back, the, the uh, Jews came back to Jerusalem, it was tough to get anywhere there because you had to go through Samaria. Well, you might remember that the Jews did not like the Samaritans. Where did the Samaritans come from? We've mentioned it before, but the bottom line is when... The 12 tribes were all together as one body, which is what God intended it to be. We see what happens is, there were when Solomon becomes king, David, everybody was united under David. Solomon, everybody's united. And then Solomon has some kid that a father would not be proud of, named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam doesn't walk in the footsteps of Solomon completely like that. And so he's not wise. He follows the, the advice of young people rather than the older, wiser ones. And it causes the nations to split. And so there were, it became known as the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. Ten tribes went north and two went south, basically. God prophesied that this would happen as well. Well, when it did, of those ten tribes, you might, those kids that have done the little ditty, 19, 20, 0, 8, 19 kings were in the northern kingdom. Zero of those 19 kings followed God. So this whole history was ungodliness. Jeroboam making their own 
uh, you know, gods to worship, saying, hey, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Right here, go ahead, you worship this calf at Dan and Bethel. Go ahead and, and, and call it Lord. You know, we'll say it's God, the God of creation, Elohim, Yahweh, but we're going to do it our way. Rather than God getting to say how they were going to worship, they made up their own rules. Sound familiar? Well, we could go on and on just on that alone, but what ended up happening then in the southern kingdom of Israel, there were 20 kings. And out of 20, there were eight. Eight that followed God. Eight out of 20. Sound familiar? We live in a world that has been evil for so much time. You know, we look at our country and there's so few godly people here. We look in the days of Elijah, and what does Elijah say? He says, Lord, they've torn down your, your, your altars. They've killed all your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And what was God's response? I have reserved for myself 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. This small remnant. God has been faithful for a small few I believe that's why this country has lasted as long as it has because of that small remnant that has been here. Think of the time before Noah's flood. It got to the point to where out of probably a billion people or more, eight people were righteous. Eight. That's incredible to think. And so we might say, oh, this world is so evil. We deserve destruction. Yes, we do. But don't forget his promises. He will be faithful to those promises. Well, anyway, when that split happened, the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah, these ten tribes, because God was patient with them, in about 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and just were brutal. You could really compare the Assyrians to Gaza today. They were brutal, raped and murdered and tortured and would cut your noses off and your ears and, I mean, did all kinds of awful things to you. They put fear in everybody. They were just so dreadful and evil. Now, those ten tribes then never got to come back. God promised these other two tribes who had some good in them. He let the Babylonians come and take them captive. And then later under Cyrus, God brought Cyrus to let them come back, back to Jerusalem. It never happened to the northern tribes. Those northern tribes, what ended up happening was they became assimilated in. They, they, they basically intermarried with the Assyrians and all of these other people, and they became known as half-breeds and Gentiles. So really, the Samaritans were known as Gentiles by the Jews, dogs, and ungodly. Now, technically, though, they were Jews. They just lost their way. And they followed God believe it or not, but much in the same way that had happened before they had been assimilated. Let's worship 
worship God the way we want to, on days we want to. And this is what the Jews couldn't tolerate. So the Samaritans, because they had their own thing, they didn't really follow the ways of the other two tribes of Judah. And so what ended up happening is when David becomes king and he builds a temple in Jerusalem, they never accepted that. They thought, no, David, we don't accept David. We don't accept those prophets. We believe in God. We believe in the Ten Commandments. We believe in the Torah. We just reject really the, the prophets and the Davidic line. They had their own Levitical priests. They had all of those things, but kind of in their own way. And we're going to see more of this later, but I want you to understand that right now. But because of these differences, if you live down here in Judah by Jerusalem and you wanted to get up to the Galilee, notice you had to either go through Samaria or you had to go all the way across the Jordan, up and then cross the Jordan again. It was almost basically three times the distance to get to Galilee or you go through Samaria. And it was dangerous because they hated each other. The Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Even though they should have been on the same side. Even though the covenant was for both of them. The Jews didn't see it. We're going to come back to that, but that gives you a little history. And by the way, the word Samaritan basically comes from a word like a keeper, a keeper of the law. That's what they were known as. And by the way, there are still Samaritans to this day that live in these areas, and they, they, have, they, they have their own Bible, in a sense, an Aramaic Bible, and much of it is the same as ours. It's just a few different changes, rejecting the prophets and the, the uh, divinic kingship. About 30 miles, somewhere in there. So, um, today, Shechem, the biblical Shechem that I showed you here, that little blue, or blue, not blue, but uh, this was biblical Shechem. Today, this town is called Nablus. And so you can go there. I'm going to show you pictures of it here coming up. But this city was an important crossroads, going on the road of the patriarchs, cutting across to get to the other way. Again, remember, you see all these mountains. There weren't very many pathways. And so it was a very important strategic place. And that's why so much history goes on in the Bible here. This is that little green area that I showed you, biblical Shechem right there. And uh, just take note of, again, terrible pictures. But, um, man, I can hardly even see it. This stone right here. Take note of that. You'll see some pictures of it coming up. But anyway, Shechem is mentioned 58 times in Scripture. Um, God gave Abraham the promise that he would inherit the land here by Shechem. This was the beginning of that promise. Um, he made an altar at Mount Ebal. You've got Gerizim and Ebal. We'll talk about those more coming up. But today, it's hardly visited because it is in Palestinian West Bank territory. And so, even when things were good, tourists just didn't go there. Yeah, yeah, that's why we didn't go there. It's just not, wasn't safe. 
So we know that some other history that took place here, Jacob, when he was fleeing, um, he meets Esau, and then he goes to Shechem. He says, yeah, I'll meet you here, but he doesn't go there. Instead, he goes to Shechem. And this is why we also see Jacob's well being here. Um, in Genesis 33, 19, Jacob called on God here. In Genesis 34, we see that when Jacob settles here, he has a daughter named Dinah. And Dinah, or Dinah, is raped by Shechem. The, basically, the very guy that the town is named after, in a sense. We have he and his son, or maybe is it Shechem the father? I can't remember now if Shechem's the father or the son. The son. Anyway, Dinah is raped, and so Simeon and Levi, they go in and they wipe out the Shechemites, the whole town, by saying, oh, yeah, we'll marry, we'll intermarry with you guys, but you know, we can't do that unless you get circumcised. So all the men in town get circumcised while they're still sore. They go in and wipe them out. However, when it goes time for time comes time for Jacob to bless his sons, Simeon and Levi, he says, Cursed be your anger, because you went and did this. I look at that and we go, oh my goodness, I mean, they raped our our sister. They had every right to do this. But we see that biblically God says this was an evil thing. I think probably because God didn't tell him to do it. But anyway, we know that this happens and then years later it's Joseph that is told to go find your brothers and he goes to Shechem. Maybe because Jacob was concerned that his other sons being there and the history that it was not a safe place to be. So Joseph goes there. They're not there. They're in Dothan. So... He goes there, and that's where he's thrown into the pit and sold as a slave. So lots of history here. Um, Joseph, as I said, was buried there according to Joshua chapter 24. So Joseph one day would go back to this very place that he was looking for his brothers. Which is kind of interesting because Joseph is a Christ figure as well. And he is going to go back to that place anyway. Um, in times of the kings, it was a gathering place for the nations, especially the northern tribes. Jeroboam, the king who basically started worshiping the golden calf, not the Egyptian one, but later, again, he says, let's build a calf. And they began and they built an altar at Dan and at Bethel and said, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. So we're going to worship God, the true God, but we're going to do it here, not where God told us to do it, not how. But similar, we're going to build an altar like that. And not when. The Bible says that Jeroboam made a, a time of his, a date of his own choosing. God said you are to celebrate on this day, these festivals. Jeroboam says, we're going to do it on this day, a day of my choosing. Again, very similar to what we see happening in Christianity today. We don't care what God's word says about Dates, we have our own dates that we would like to use. This is not new. Nothing new under the sun. It's been going on for ages. 
But tonight, I want to focus a little bit on Deuteronomy 27, because the prophets are going to refer back to this place here at Shechem time and time again, because it is a place known of blessings and curses. And as we move forward on that theme a little bit, I want you to understand blessings and curses are real things. Today, God bless you because you sneezed. Technically, it seems like the roots of that are not even Christian. I mean, first of all, it isn't in the Bible. I know my wife hates it because apparently it had something to do with like uh, Native Americans, like your spirit, to keep your spirit from leaving you. God bless you, and then that way your spirit could stay inside you. Okay? All these rituals and traditions that we have that really have nothing to do with God to begin with. But I want you to know blessings are real. Words matter. And when we bless our children, it means something. And if you curse your children, and you say things that are ungodly in your home, that means something. It is not just taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's not just vulgarity. Words mean something. This week, Devin sent me Something of uh, a Jew being asked, what's your favorite Jewish word? He said, devar. Devar is the word for word. But it's also the word for a noun, a thing. He said, there is absolutely no distinction outside of context between basically a word and a thing. You can't differentiate between them. A word and a noun. He said, therefore, words are real. They're concrete. They can build up. They can tear down. But a word is literally something. He went on to describe, you know, that word abracadabra that magicians use. That's actually in the Talmud. And it comes from the Arabic abira which basically means a word, kadabra, to be spoke into existence. A word speaking into existence. And that's where they get that abracadabra from. Abracadabra, voila. And if you think about it, again, that should take us back to creation. A word speaking into existence, a devar, a noun, a thing that when God created, and I know I, I've sh I think I've shown you guys, I, I show it to a lot of times when I'm speaking, but the, the somatics, the study of sound, and you take this plate that I have and I stick sand on it, and you put a, a, a tone of, what is it, tonoscope or whatever on there, and it, it makes noises, you know, in different frequencies, and that sand will just do into shapes like that. Change the tone, different shape. Change the tone, different shape. I mean, literally that fast. And I use that to tell kids that, you know, we talk about God creating things through the spoken word, and it doesn't make any sense to us how that could happen. But yet, look at this. Here's sound shaping things. Very intricate patterns of things. And I could just see, not saying this is how God did it, but you can see 
It makes it tangible that God could go, Andrew. Maybe that one was, Andrew. <laughs> no, I just kidding. Anyway, the point being, abracadabra, I, I create as I speak. And when we say words, when we give blessings and when we give curses, by our words we build up, by our words we tear down. We speak life, we speak death. There's life and death in the power of the tongue. We need to be careful about what we say. Because words in your home will build up and they will tell, tell, tear down because those words are nouns. They are things. They are tangible. I could give a whole message on this alone. But I just want you to keep that in mind as we go to Deuteronomy 11. Now, I know this is small and a lot of words on a page, but I don't intend for you to read it here as much as I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 11 because this was the promise that God gave. When they were going to enter into the promised land, he said, when you guys get to Shechem, basically, this is what you're going to do. It shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its seasons, early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain. And he goes on and he says in verse 16, Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. So when you go into this land that I've promised, I'm going to take you into, obey. You obey, you get blessings. You disobey, he says you're going to be deceived. Your heart will be deceived. You turn aside and serve other gods. Uh, the anger of the Lord is going to be aroused against you. He's going to shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. You shall write them on the doorposts, he says, these commandments. Going to verse 20, he talks about these commands and he says, Write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates so that you don't forget. Put them on your heart so that you don't forget. As a matter of fact, later he's going to say, make a seat seat so that you don't forget. I'm giving you every reason so that you don't forget because let me tell you, right now my words are, are, are powerful. These aren't just words. These are things. And when I say if you obey, I'm going to bless, and if you disobey, I'm going to curse you can take it to the bank. It's reality. Verse 22, For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Right now, Israel is trying to you know, chase out Gaza. Why? Why would God give it to them if they're not willing to obey? If they're going to continue to go to these music festivals and celebrate pagan gods, just like he says and warns here, why is God going to give it to them back yet? This is why I say something bigger has to happen yet to where Israel cannot rely on themselves and they are brought back to repentance that they call out to God and say, God, we have sinned. 
And then God is going to come and bring a mighty deliverance. I don't know how this is going to look. This could lead up to that. I don't know. But this is the promise. Verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. We don't need to argue who owns the land. God tells us. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates even, to the western sea shall be your territory. Isn't that interesting? By the way, there was a Jew in America who just patented or, uh, what do you call it, trademarked from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, and he's going to sue everybody who uses it. Pretty clever. But God says from the river, and not just the Jordan, but from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean Sea is yours. That's what Scripture says right here. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. It goes on in verse 29. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal, the very mountains in which Shechem lies right in between, about a mile and a half apart from peak to peak. So when you go down into the town, there is not much of a valley there. You'll see it more in some other pictures coming up. So that was the promise going into the promised land. Now they get into the promised land here in Deuteronomy 27. And it says, Now Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. When you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. There shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And it goes through certain tribes. And then it goes on and it gives all of these curses. Cursed is the one who treats his father and mother with contempt. Kids, are you hearing that? You treat your mom and dad with contempt? Cursed. There's a curse, a thing, a noun that is placed upon you. Uh, disrespect, um, hatred, any of those things would be contempt. That is how serious it is for you kids to be honoring your father and mother so that it may go well with ye, and you may live long upon the earth. That is a thing. That is a real blessing. You obey your parents, there's a blessing. You disobey, there's a curse. I'm sure there are those that can attest in here. When you go to jails, prisons, I'll ask, I'll ask prisoners all the time, name the Ten Commandments. They always forget, honor your father and mother. If you never learn to honor your father and mother here on this earth, let me tell you, you will not learn to obey God on this earth. And when I see children who are disobedient to their parents... I see as the seed, so the flower. As the child, so the adult. 
And if you don't learn as a child, as an adult, you're going to be a disobedient, probably jail-bound adult. Because there's a curse, and that curse is real. That's what we're seeing here. If you move uh, your neighbor's landmark, if you wander off the, you know, take, make basically be mean and make a blind man water, wander off the road, you have a heart for evil. Ultimately, perverting justice, lying with your father's wife or an animal or your sister or mother-in-law, attacking your neighbor secretly, taking a bribe. Verse 26, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. Real abracadabra. Speaking into existence the truth of these words. Verse 28, or chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, the very next chapter. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Abracadabra. Speaking life into existence. Guys, we have talked time and time again about the importance of obedience in the church today. And I know, I always have to say it, this has nothing to do with about salvation. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. It is salvation by grace alone. But let me tell you, as a Christian, you can walk through this life with a cursed life. And you wonder why all these bad things keep happening in your life. Now, again... I'm not saying, hey, no problems for Christians. You follow God, you'll never have any problems. No, God said you will be persecuted because of me. They persecuted me first. You'll be hated because they hated me first. But he also promises this. There are going to be blessings even while you're hated. I didn't put it up here. and I may have talked about it before in my godly, uh, godly family presentation. I talk about this amazing study where they took an ungodly, disobedient man and a godly missionary from the same period in history, the early 1800s, and they followed his, their lineages of both of them. One of their lineages has murder after murder after murder. The other lineage has president after senator after godly missionary. All this blessed line of many descendants, and this line, few descendants and evil. Because these are real words that go on here at Ebal and Gerizim. Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself just as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and that you shall, or they shall be afraid of you. And it goes on and talks about the rain and all of this, that you're going to be the head, not the tail. You're not going to be running. You're going to be the one chasing. You're going to, all these blessings. But today, I hear in the church, I hear among Christianity, Lord, bless me. Apart from disobedience, it doesn't work. Today has been, or this week has been a very heavy week for me, counseling people who are just struggling with things, in Christianity. One in particular just really wants to know 
God. Goes to church, has claimed to know God, but is tired of his prayers not being answered. Guys, how many of you have had sins and it's like, I just want this to be done. I just want it. You know, God, please, I've asked you, stop. Let I don't want to lose my temper anymore. Maybe minutes later, there you go again, off the handle. And I was telling them, you know, when I was in high school, I had a temper that was terrible. I could have taken somebody three times my size down, I guarantee it. Wouldn't have been pretty, wouldn't have been graceful, but I was scrappy and more importantly, evil. You know, the sons of Sceva went in and basically, the, you know, were attacked by one man, the seven sons in the New Testament, because it was evil. Bottom line, that's what it was. I would lose my temper. and I, I mean, I would do things that shouldn't be done. I put so many holes in walls, dents in things. I, I'm ashamed. And I would pray, God, I don't want to do this. And I'd blow up again, and then I'd like, God, I'm sorry, this is the third time this week. Please forgive me. I, I talked about this when we talked about the saint and the sinner stuff. I got so tired that eventually it's like, God, are you really? I mean, first of all, are you there? Are you listening? Because I'm asking. And second of all, I struggled with, but God, I mean, why would you forgive me? I've come to you 50 times. Why would you forgive me now? And first of all, I had to realize that God says, Yes, I've already forgiven you 2,000 years ago on that cross. I had to come to realize how much he loved me. But I also had to come and realize that God doesn't just answer your prayers by rubbing his belly and making him a magic genie. Why would God answer my prayer when I'd still go watch Rated R movies on TV. Why would God answer my prayers when I had lustful thoughts constantly? Wasn't really trying to stop that. Why would God answer my prayer when, when I'm living in so many areas of my life that I had not surrendered over to Him, this disobedience, and yet I'm saying, but God, answer my prayers. Make me a better person. And it's interesting that through the years, as my faith grew, and I began to knock things off of the, the, the sin list, that all of a sudden I saw changes in my life take place. That rather than three times a week, it became once a month that I'd lose my temper. And then maybe once every three months, and then, you know, once every six months. And then, you know, now... It still happens. I can still lose my temper, but thankfully it's usually once every year or two. But when it does, it's ugly. But the closer I come to God and the more of the filth that I get out of my life, the more I see the blessings that come into my life. 
You know, when we evangelize out on the street, Proverbs 28.9 is one that I used a lot. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayers are an abomination. I remember outside of PJ's, turning my Bible open to this girl who had just told me that she was practicing bisexualism and all of this, but she went to church. And she thought that, hey, I'm a Christian because I go to church. And I turned it around, and she had been telling me how the law didn't mean anything to her, blah, blah, blah. And I had her read this verse out loud. And I said, so what is God? And she said, she ended the conversation, well, I pray at night. And that's when I turned this and I gave her this. And I said, what does God see your prayers as? And for the first time after, a, you know, I don't know how many minutes of talking with her where she was just cocky and, you know, thinking she was so smart and, you know, just having fun with the old crazy guy talking on the street. For the first time, humility set in and she said, she said, detestable. NIV says detestable rather than an abomination. It's like the first time a light bulb came on. I said, you just told me that you were turning a deaf ear to God's commandments. What does God see them as? Detestable. Why would God listen to your prayers? Just because you go to church and you pray at night? But yet, you, you love the sin in your life? Why would God answer that? David in Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard or held iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not listen to my prayers, it says in, in the NIV. You wonder why your prayers aren't being answered? Maybe your relationship with Jesus isn't where it needs to be. Maybe, maybe you're hanging on to a lot of filth and you just love things of this world more than you love God. I've got a practicing homosexual brother who loves the sin or, or, or homosexuality more than he loves God. I know Christian men who love lustful thoughts and, and you know, their hormones or whatever it is looking at women more than they love God. Oh, it's just eye candy. No, it's a curse. It's a curse that you bring upon yourself. And you need to... As Job said, make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look lustfully upon a woman. And every time you do, you better recognize it as sin and you better take it to him, repent, and call on the Lord because let me tell you, there is a curse that is upon you. Again, you might be a saved man and you're going to be in heaven with the Lord because you had Jesus. But let me tell you, you're walking around on this earth cursed with curses upon you. Jesus' death on the cross does not remove the curse of disobedience. It brings forgiveness. It takes away the condemnation for those who call on Him and love Him. But it does not remove the curses of disobedience. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. These are New Testament verses, folks. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, and if a doer isn't being obedient, then I don't know what a doer is. He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. You might even say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Oh, and then you go and you, you're watching pornography. 
because you love your sin more than you love God and you're bringing curses upon you and your family. And you forget who you are, a child of God. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. I love that. The law of liberty. I am free. I'm not cursed, but because I am free, the law of liberty is obedience from freedom. Obedience because of freedom. It says, continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Find it funny, I could go into church and maybe go up and do a sermon and say, you know what, if you guys are, are not bridling your tongue, you're cussing and swearing and you're bringing curses upon you, your religion is useless. I would be probably tarred and feathered as a heretic preaching law, legalism. And yet, this is the New Testament. Somehow we have schizophrenia in Christianity today. Acts 5.32, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who just, you know, go to church on Sunday. Who keep the Sabbath on Saturday. Who pray at night. No, who obey. Who obey Him. Again, not, not to earn your salvation, but to not allow curses to be brought upon your life. Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now that almost sounds like works righteousness right there. You know why? Because as James says, faith without works is dead. If you're not doing, you have lied to yourself and you do not know Jesus. You just like the concept of who Jesus is. You like the fire insurance so that you don't go to hell. But you don't know Jesus because you're not following after him. So faith, if you really have it, means you're going to have a desire to do what is good. Oh, you're going to fail at times, guaranteed. Like I said, I still do all the time. I fail. But I hate it when I fail. I despise it because I hate sin. I'm not going to embrace it. I'm not going to say, oh, well, I guess I'm a man. Lust is okay. I'm going to hate it. John 9, 31, we know that God does not hear sinners. Whoa, this is New Testament? Oh, but Jesus has forgiven you, so you're not a sinner anymore, so now you can go do anything you want. No, that is what Jude warns us about. This cheap grace of, oh, well, I go to church. I, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I can live like hell and hope to get to heaven. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears Him. 
This is a consistency from the old to the new. And this is what goes on at Mount Ebal. The altar there at Mount Ebal. In archaeology, they have actually found this plate dated from basically the Bronze Age, what they say, but really technically according to the corrected archaeological timeline, it comes from the early to middle Bronze Age, which is exactly when they're coming into the Promised Land. And we just read in Deuteronomy, when you come into the Promised Land, you are to make these blessings and curses. And on Mount Ebal, the curses go, and on Mount Ebal, they have found this, and it literally says this. Cursed, cursed, cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. By the way, there's 40 words on there. And this is what it says for Mount Ebal. Up here on the mountain is this altar. Stones that have not had iron tools on them, just regular rocks. And it has been found there. God gave Abraham the promise that he would inherit the land here at Shechem. And Abraham made an altar, the Bible says, on Mount Ebal. Whether this is it or not, I don't know. But here's an altar on Mount Ebal. A place of where curses were pronounced. How big is that altar? Oh, I'm guessing about the size of this inner area, probably a little bigger than this little area here. You'll see a little bit more here to give you some perspective. Um, is that going to play? Here it is, Mount Gerizim. Okay. Mount Ebal, you can see in the picture, is the other side. This is Mount Gerizim where the blessings were given. And there are some ruins here on the top of the mountain as well. Now, on Mount Gerizim, you're going to see that there was a temple that was built here, I think, I can't remember if it was like 800 B.C. or something like that, tore down, Herod uh, rebuilt one, and so some of these ruins are more modern. Um, but it gives you a little bit of an idea. This is bigger than that one on the other side. Here is biblical Shechem, that green area that I was showing you before, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, would be basically over here on this other side then. But this is the legitimate spot, 100% of where these things took place. Ebal means Mount of Baroness. Gerizim means cut up or rocky. Josephus tells us that... Uh, if you remember in the book of Ezra, Sanballat, they were building the temple. And remember, I said the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with it. You often think, well, those are the pagan, ungodly, non-Christian people. But no, those are the Samaritans. People who are supposed to be in the family of God. And they were the ones trying to stop the building of this temple. Brian, biblical yeah. Shechem, there's nothing Yes, a lot of Nablus is built over top of it. This is only the part that has been excavated, but there would be more than what that little area is. So, But anyway, um, what's that? Yes, this here would actually be very close to probably the Jacob's well. 
um, or it might be right in the center of that biblical Shechem area. And so you're seeing Nablus, the current city there today, which actually goes behind it as well, pretty much all around it. So here is a monument that I told you. Remember I showed you that before? In biblical Shechem, this is where Joshua set up a monument there and a covenant renewing the blessing and curses when he came into the promised land. Remember when he said, choose this day whom you will follow, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord right here. And here is a monumental stone that they believe is one of them that he set up. Here is this temple fortress in basically biblical Shechem. And here's that stone right there. You remember that during the time of Gideon, they, there was a thousand people that ran into a fortress to hide from Abimelech. And basically he had everybody go gather wood, leaned it up against this temple fortress and burned it down. In that area there that is outlined, there was a thousand people that died from hiding in a, in a fortress that was there. That took place here. So a lot of amazing things that are, are happening here. This gives you a little perspective as far as where everything is at again. Um, here's another one. Jacob's well. Shechem, the biblical Shechem is there. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. So Jacob's well, go ahead. So that's in Palestinian territory? Yes, the West Bank. Just, All of it. That far apart. Uh, I mean, that close together and there's... This is all, all in West Bank right now. Oh. The whole thing. Okay. Yep. So you can see Jacob's well over there. Uh, we're going to take you to Jacob's well. This is the site, as always. They always have to build these churches over top of them. This is the legit spot, without question, Jacob's well. That's going to be under here. Is that a mosque? Um, no, it is not. Oh, well, I don't believe it is. If you go back there, I saw a mosque in the last year. Yeah, there probably, there's definitely mosques there, but I don't... Yeah, there, there definitely are mosques there in, in the town, but I don't believe that this is. Um, this is uh, Justin Martyr, you know, the early church father from 100 to 165 AD. He lived here in Shechem, and he writes about Shechem's well, or Joseph's, Jacob's well being there. Uh, by 384 AD, there was a Byzantine church that was built over top of it. Jerome in the 300s writes about it. Um, there is the remains here of this Byzantine church that we can see to this day. Um, and now there is a, I have here, a modern church. The Crusaders built a church over it. These are pillars from that time period of the Crusades uh, in the 1100s. And then in 1860, it was a Greek Orthodox church, and that's what it is today, is a Greek Orthodox one. And in 1914, they ran out of money, so they didn't finish it, and then in 2002, it finally got finished. But you go inside of this church, down in the basement is where you find Jacob's well. 
So it's hard to imagine any of it, but this is a picture from the early 1800s of Jacob's well. Gives you kind of an idea of a woman that would come and talk to Jesus at this well in John chapter 4. This is the well, 151 feet deep. It was measured in the 1800s. Today, it's like 120, 130 feet, they say. 151 feet. Remember when Jesus came to that woman at the well? He says, if you would, you know, I can give you living water in which you will never thirst again. She says, Sir, give me this water. He says, well, how can you give me this water? Because the well is deep. Yeah, it is. I, I don't understand how they do this stuff, but this is what they did. But Jesus says, everyone who drinks the waters that I give will never thirst again. And this woman wants it so badly. This is, again, the town where Joseph, Joseph's tomb is here as well, not at this church, but at a different location, very close. And uh, here is his tomb right there, just to give you some perspective. I want to close out by looking at this woman who came here to this well. In John chapter 4, and you can look at this, I'm not going to give you the whole thing, but I'd encourage you to go read John 4 again because this is just packed with amazing stuff. But the bottom line is that this place of Shechem, Mount Gerizim, has been a place of covenant. A place of promise. A place of saying, I'm going to follow. Choose this day whom you will follow. And in essence, that is exactly what Yeshua Jesus did to this woman when he went through Samaria. He didn't go along. He had to go through Samaria. Now, in the New Testament, it calls it Sychar. That is the same place. Sychar is Shechem. And when he meets this woman there, the Bible tells us it's about the sixth hour, which would be noon. It wasn't used in the Roman calendar. It would be too late for all the things that have to take place to take place. But So, noon about is when this takes place. You, you know the story. She probably comes out because she didn't want to be around other people. We don't know. Maybe her husband's died. We don't know all the background. But to me, it seems like this woman basically was one of these women who needed to be challenged and say, choose this day whom you will follow. But we also know this is a woman who is familiar with the word of God. She was a Samaritan. They, they had... The commandments. They just didn't see everything the same. She even says to Jesus, he says, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus says, woman, I tell you, the day is coming when you will worship neither on this mountain or in, nor in Jerusalem. But he says, the true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. These are the worshipers God desires. I think that is so important because at a place of obedience, he's saying it's, it doesn't matter where you worship. It matters that are you worshiping in spirit and truth? Are you obeying because the letter of the law, which, by the way, the Samaritans had it. The Samaritans would not have accepted having five husbands. And the husband that she had now wasn't even her husband. They would not have accepted this. But he's saying, I want somebody who's going to worship me in spirit. I want somebody who's going to obey in spirit. Not that the, that the law is spirit and you don't have to obey it because it's just a spiritual meaning. 
But because of the spirit I put in you, you will obey that literal law. I find it also interesting in this story, this is the very first time Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And he says it at the sixth hour. The very next and the only next time we see Jesus declaring thirst is at the sixth hour on the cross. He is pointing to this living water that I am going to give. And it's going to be given because of the cross. It is here that Jesus proves that he is a prophet. Not by telling the future, but rather by declaring the present. And declaring repentance that is needed. Which, by the way, is very much in line with most of the messages of the prophets of old. It was a message of repentance and revealing of sin. And this is what Yeshua does. He says, you're right in saying that you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the one that you are with now is not a, your husband. And she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. The spirit of prophecy. Right there, Jesus even declared. Not to say that there can't be a time when future is told, but by far the majority of a prophetic message is a revealing of sin and a call to repentance. And this is what Yeshua does here at this place, a very significant place, a place, choose today, blessing or curses. And notice that this woman didn't get what she was asking for right away. Sir, give me this water so that I do not have to come and draw well or draw water from this well. Jesus said, okay. No, he says, so, Go get your husband. He draws out from her the reason that she's not ready for living water. He draws from her her sin and tries to reveal to her what she really needs to get that living water that would come later at a sixth hour. She first needs to repent. So many people in Christianity today are just like this woman crying, Sir, give me this living water. I want it. Give me the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus, I'll sing songs to you, but I'm not going to stop pornography. Yes, Lord, I'll give you praises, but I'm not going to stop, you know, scraping and scrounging for every last material possession I can find on this earth. Yes, Lord, I want that living water, but I also want to have all the fun that I can have in this world. Doesn't do that. She doesn't get what she wants until what is in her is drawn out. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. When the disciples come back, they see him talking to this woman. He's like, did somebody give him food? And he's like, you don't get it. My food, what refreshes me, what nourishes me, what strengthens me, is to do the will of my Father. Obedience. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
Now after the two days, he departed there and went to Galilee. This was my last slide, by the way. You know, I think this is very important because, as I said, these Samaritans were half-breeds that the Assyrians basically allowed to live there. They were Gentiles. And Jesus is going to call them, and in calling them, he is saying this. Let me back up in a moment. Notice that he says, "We Jew, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus then answers and says, we, we do. We Jews worship what we know. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Jesus identified himself, not as a Gentile, not as a Samaritan who knew the laws and those things, but denied you know, some other aspects. He identified himself with the Jews of Judah. But notice, in identifying himself with that, unlike the Jews of that time that bickered between you know, the two, he was welcoming them in and saying, I am allowing you to be to enter back in to the covenant I gave to you to begin with. I want you Samaritans to have a part of what I have to offer, the living water. I'm not going to have this separation, but I came to break down this dividing wall of hostility. I came so that you might be one again. Remember, these Samaritans were part of what were called the ten lost tribes of Israel. And what does Jesus say when he came? I have come only for the lost sheep of Israel. This is the very heart of what God came to do, was to bring the 12 tribes back and any foreigner who would want to join with them. And that is a picture, and I think why it is so important that he goes here to Samaria, to the Gentiles, and to say, I want you to come back to me. I invite you to come back. And it's significant that he stays there two days because that is the time of the Gentiles. We've looked at Hosea 5 and 6 before where it says in chapter 6 of Hosea, he says, I'm going to be like a lion to Ephraim. I'm going to send them away. I'm going to go back to my place. And then after two days or 2,000 years, he says, after the time of the Gentiles, after those two days, then Israel's going to come back. Judah, the Jews, are going to come back and realize that I'm their Messiah, ultimately. Go back and look at that. We've talked about it before, so I'm not going to go into great detail. But this is also what Romans says. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. When the full number of Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. After 2,000 years of history, it seems the Bible seems to be pointing to the fact that the Jews are going to know their Savior. 
and they're going to call upon their Messiah and they're going to look on him whom they pierced and they're going to mourn for him as one mourns, from, mourns for an only child and weep for him as one weeps for a firstborn. That's what's going on here. And when Jesus says, you know, this woman says, you know, when, when the prophet comes, he's gonna, he, they're going to tell us. And he says, woman, I who speak to you am he. That takes you all the way back to Moses. I am. A verse that this woman would have been very familiar with. I am. Isaiah 52, verse 6 says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. This woman goes back into town. The town comes out to him because the well was outside of town. And we see that many believed. One even said, we, we now believe not only because of what you said, that this man told you everything that he ever did, or that what you ever did, but because we have heard him ourselves. This is a picture of Yeshua not only identifying himself with the Jews, but basically a cry to you and say, listen, this living water, it's for you Gentiles as well. You can join. But notice, it's not what Christianity has made it today of Jesus and going and setting up a temple in Mount, on Mount Gerizim and saying, all right, these Jews have rejected me. Now we're going to make our own church. It's a call back to biblical Judaism, not rabbinical Judaism, biblical Judaism, which is the Bible, which is truth. And this is what God has called us to be. And so when we look at Mount Gerizim, Shechem, Mount Ebal, any of this, this is a call to you. Choose this day whom you will follow. But as for me and my house, I choose to follow God and I choose to be grafted in to that same nourishing sap of Israel the same covenant promise that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, is now mine because I have been grafted in. And I choose to speak and to put blessings upon my family, upon myself, because of the choices that by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit that he has put in me to obey. And when I am stupid and disobey, which happens a lot, as I said, I hate it and I'm going to go to him and claim the forgiveness that Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord saves, gives me. And there is, I will know that there is no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. But I want my children to be blessed, my grandchildren to be blessed, my marriage to be blessed. I want you to be blessed and all who set foot in this building to be blessed because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and you will not be welcome to bring ungodliness into this place. And I hope that you will not allow ungodliness to come into your place, to your homes, 
just as Adam was placed in the garden to protect it. You are placed to protect your home, your family, and those around you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy that though we fail time and time again, your mercies are forever. Your mercy endures forever. But God, we do not want to live a life of disobedience. We want to live a life that is blessed because we have a heart for you, that we worship you in spirit and in truth, and that those commandments would be upon our lips, that we would know them, that we may walk in them, and that when we fail, we remember your mercy endures forever. Thank you for that mercy. But now, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the power of Christ who lives in each and every one of us, may you prick our conscience every time we go astray. May you empower us to say no, to put this flesh into submission, that we would fast, that we would pray, that we would not give in to every desire, but that we would practice and train in godliness, as Timothy tells us to do. We thank you, Jesus, for your powerful work that your word that is real, that these blessings and promises are real. These are not just spiritual words. These are real things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.